for Pulse. All right. Um, welcome to the uh, 11th episode of the Digital Doctor podcast. I'm Wai Kiong, and I don't believe you're already in double digits for a number of episodes. And um, today we have our usual co-hosts again, um, Ed and Stephen. Guys, you want to say hi? Hello. Hi. And uh, I'm really excited about our guest today. And our guest today is uh, Mr. Bill Elwood, who's the director of the Open Eyes Project. Um, and I first heard of Open Eyes and met Bill back in November 2011 at EHI when I was just wandering the booths um, looking for cool IT stuff that's going on in the NHS. And I stumbled upon um, Open Eyes, which is this uh, really uh, new, innovative, and quite ambitious project uh, to create an electronic patient record, uh, which is open source. Um, for uh, Morfield's Eye Hospital, which is one of the premier eye hospitals um, in this country, if not the world. Um, so uh, welcome, Bill, to our podcast. Well, welcome, and thank you very much indeed for having me on. This is really interesting. Um, so, Bill, I was wondering, do you mind just maybe introducing to our listeners a little bit about your background and then um, uh, what Open Eyes is all about? Yeah, certainly. Well, um, uh, I, before I did medicine, I did a bit of mathematics and computing. Um, so I've got a bit of a nerdy and geeky background. In fact, my uh, daughter calls me a neek, which is a cross between a nerd and a geek, which is very charming. <laughs> <laughs> but I then went on to do medicine and uh, was uh, when I became a consultant in ophthalmology at uh, Moorfield. So I was very frustrated by the lack of good IT. And, and really, medicine has lagged behind a lot of other fields in, in life, like the sort of shopping and banking and just personal IT and the Internet that we're used to. Uh, when we go to work in the NHS particularly, uh, the IT just is as if it's from a different generation. Mm. Um, so that was very frustrating. And my frustration got worse when I became medical director in uh, 2001 because all the things I was being asked to do and wanted to do as medical director, like improve patient care, do proper audits and outcome analysis, get research properly organized, teaching, um, productivity, management information, pretty much you name it. None of that is really possible paper notes. So it became very clear to me that the only solution to all those problems was to start with a good patient record. So that's how the thinking behind the Open Eyes project started. All right. And, and of course, the, the relatively unique thing about Open Eyes in NHS IT is the fact that uh, a decision was made to actually build this uh, yourself and also to run it as an open source project. So how did all that happen? Okay. Well, I think there are two, two questions there. And the first was, why did we do it ourselves? Well, we... we um, we'd had some experience in, in doing electronic records ourselves before. So uh, the first one we did was in 97, and that was an in-house project written in FoxPro, which mm -hmm. was a great little program. Um, and then we handed over to a commercial company to uh, develop further, and they would do that in return for sales. Um, unfortunately, the timing wasn't good because just as they had a product to launch, the national program was announced, and um, their potential customers would turn around and say, well, why should we buy your product when the national program is going to produce something which will do all this for nothing? Mm. So 
um, their market was removed and uh, the whole deal broke down and we were unable to develop it further. But when you were looking around for something new in late 2009, 2010, uh, looking around the market, uh, there was nothing that did exactly what we wanted. And one of the key things we were looking for was flexibility. Because the NHS, as you, as you all know, changes very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And if you have a, a monolithic system uh, supplied by somebody else, particularly and ironically, the, the bigger it is and the more user it has, the more users it has, the less flexible it is. So if mm -hmm. you want to change, it's actually very difficult to get it. And even if you do get it, it's uh, very expensive and takes a long time. So flexibility, the ability to change in a very short period of time is a key uh, element to us. Uh, but also excellence. I mean, we, we wanted to have the best possible electronic record. And we realized that the only way to do that was to actually put our money where our mouth was and, and do it ourselves. So that, that's why we, we did the thing ourselves. Why we did open source? Uh, lots of reasons for that. Um, some negative reasons, some positive reasons. We'll start with the negative ones. Uh, and the, the deal we had with our commercial partner uh, meant that we were putting in all the uh, ideas and all the um, hard work into defining how it should work. Mm. Unable to, when, when they got into financial difficulties, we were unable to take advantage of that and use it. So it was locked away. Mm. Uh, so we didn't want that to happen again. So that was the negative reason. The positive reason is that if you think about it, medicine, um, the clinical medicine that we're used to, works in a very open source way. Uh, that we all share ideas about treatments and take other people's treatments and improve them and tell everybody about it. That's exactly the open source model of software development. Um, so I, th I think the idea itself fits very well with the way clinicians actually work, um, particularly in NHS. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, uh, it's got a great future in the NHS. We've had, uh, culturally, we're a little bit behind the curve. But there are whole countries using open source, like Brazil. And um, I think there are lots of advantages to it. The fact that you can see the whole thing and there's nothing to hide, uh, I think, is absolutely crucial. You know, would, you, would you buy, if you buy a house, you get a survey which tells you all about how the house is actually built, whether it's going to fall down, how everything's constructed. You see the plans, you see. Uh, the planning permission, everything. If you were if you were trying to buy a house and they'd say, "I'm sorry, the uh, the plans are secret. We're not telling you what's behind the wallpaper. We're not telling you how deep the foundations are, etc." You just wouldn't buy it. So I think open source has got a lot of advantages. Well, Bill, I mean, um, from just what you said, it gives us so much to, to think about. But I just, I just thought I was really heartened when you mentioned the word um, striving for excellence. Because I think the thing that really attracted me to the demonstration that you were giving, you know, one and a half years ago, was the kind of very basic principles that you built in to things like user interface and workflow. And also your commitment on saying, I, sh I will never make my colleagues repeat anything or use any technology that will slow them down and get in the way between them and patient care. But that is actually such a hard 
um, hard thing to achieve. But when I was seeing you use your system and demonstrating it, it, it does seem to come across. I mean, have, has that been a very difficult process? Or? Uh, well, it, it's, yes, it's not been easy, but it's, it's absolutely vital because um, IT should be a tool, uh, a means to an end, uh, rather than end in itself. It should be fun to use, but it, it should not get in the way. So uh, ideal IT, you don't actually realize you're using it. Um, you're doing your job um, and you're doing what needs to be done. But the IT enables rather than hinders you in your job. And, and that was the aim that we were trying to achieve. Um, and again, it's, it's not a, a new idea because we're all used to, we all know what good software feels like, even if we can't define it. But a good bit of software will help you do something. Um, and when you're finished, you think, hmm, that was really well designed. Uh, it was helpful. And I'd like to use that again. And I'd like to use software from that source for something else. Um, so it, it's, it really comes down to good design. Uh, I don't think there's any fundamental difference between the design principles of a piece of software and a bit of hardware mm. uh, or a, even something like a spoon. You know, it's either well designed or it's badly designed. And, and we all, uh, as consumers, can tell the difference between good and bad, even if it's more difficult to actually produce something that's good. So it was certainly an aim of the project to produce something that people went away from thinking, hmm, that was a really good thing to use. And and I guess for me, the, the, the feature that kind of made me go wow most was the um, smart or intelligent drawings when you were able to, for example, draw a cataract, adjust the size of the pupils, and then dynamically the computer knows what you are drawing and then auto-generates a report. And anyone can see that that immediately decreases the uh, the workload and also makes um, not only diagrams but text so clear for different people to read so that you don't make mistakes interpreting it. I mean, how, how did you come up with that, that particular idea? Because I think I've never seen that in, in any electronic patient records before. No, that's right. Well, th that was the thing that we started with because uh, we realised that that was the most difficult thing to achieve, but the most important, but particularly in ophthalmology, which is a very graphic specialty. It's not the only graphic specialty. I mean, a lot of uh, others use drawings uh, as a key part of their data recording. But it was, it was something that, um, even on paper, uh, represents duplication of data entry. Mm. So you do a drawing on a, in paper notes, and then you write out a description of what you've just drawn, which is duplication. And then you might even write out the diagnosis, which again is inferred or implied by the diagram. So um, it's, it's something that, that we thought, if we can do this, this is actually going to be quicker than paper, not just as quick. Um, because when, when you're drawing, you're telling the system as a whole quite a lot of information about um, the examination, about the patient. And going back to the principle you mentioned earlier about not doing anything twice, we thought, well, let's, let's see if we can get people to do the drawing and then get everything else out uh, by inference. So that, that was the principle behind it. And it, it took a little while to work out how to do it, but it, it has 
worked. And I, and I think it's become a very central component of the whole system. Um, apart from anything else, it gives a sort of um, slight wow factor to it. So going back to that sort of coolness that people like about software, they think, hmm, yeah, I liked using that. Um, and the drawing part of it uh, has been very important. It, it also breaks up the rather monotonous uh, process of entering data on a standard form. Mm, I'm mm. to filling in forms for you know, booking, travel, internet, shopping, um, you name it. Um, and actually breaking that up with something that's a bit more interesting than a drop-down or a checkbox, uh, I think is you know, better for the user. Can I, can I ask, ask Bill? I mean, that's really, really interesting and, and something that we've been trying um, or I've been trying to do with my consultancy is trying to you know, create better ways of entering data than forms. But yeah. we come across this problem over and over again, which is the current technology stack that hospitals are using, particularly the abundance of Internet Explorer, the early version six and seven, which make it very, very challenging to create these sorts of enjoyable user experiences using, you know, modern elements such as, you know, HTML5 canvases and stuff like that. Um, I mean, how, how did you, I mean, I know that you managed, and I'm still amazingly impressed by this, you managed to get people using Chrome. But um, how did you sort of tackle that issue? Well, I think head-on is the short answer. <laughs> it's, uh, um, there, there's uh, an enormous inertia in NHS IT, as you know. And, um, uh, and this is largely because of the legacy of the way it's been organised. And looking at it from the IT department's point of view, you know, they tend to be very uh, uh, under-stressed, overstretched, and off, often they have a, a defensive attitude. And you can yeah. totally understand that. Uh, and they've got to make sure things work. And, the, and these systems are important. And if they go down, you know, the IT department are the ones that get it in the neck. Mm. Um, and the, the history of the development of Internet Explorer, and the, the non-standard way it was developed, meant that a lot of systems then could only work with that. So that when international and, and non-proprietary standards were agreed, a lot of software was never updated. Mm. Um, but... You know, there are two choices, really. You can say, well, let's live with that and we'll produce something which is compromised from the beginning but will be easily implemented. Or we can produce something that's the best thing possible and it'll be a pain in the neck for people to implement. And we just thought, well, let's go, the second one's better. So did they have to go in and make all the other applications compatible with Chrome or did they sort of run two browsers and you can yep. use open eyes, you have to use Chrome? The, the latter. We, we, we just decided we're not going to make OpenEyes compatible with IE6, full stop, yeah. because the, the effort required um, is enormous, and the user experience, even when he made the effort. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we said, like, you know, if you like this, you can install Chrome. And it, actually, it's not that difficult, um, because users, uh, and there are a number of sites... Um, who are using uh, aspects of uh, OpenEyes at the moment, like Newcastle, for example, where they've done exactly that. So uh, when you log on, if you want to use the legacy hospital systems, you launch IE6. And if you want to use OpenEyes, you launch um, Chrome. 
Mm. That works absolutely fine. And, and users are entirely happy to run two different bits of software in exchange for getting that additional experience of using the the, the features of OpenEyes that can't run on IE6. Yeah, as soon as this uh, podcast is over, I'm going to be on the phone to my clients <laughs> and tell them that <laughs> it's over. I'm no longer supporting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, you'll, you'll be very um, widely supported in that view. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to take a leap from the, uh, Apple's book, and uh, this isn't, isn't a plug for Apple. I know a lot of us are very keen on their products, but uh, one attitude they have is when they decide that something is the future, they just go for it. Yeah. Like the, the iMac came out without a floppy disk, and everyone said, oh, you're totally insane. And now but it doesn't even have a CD drive. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, you know, the, I think it's a matter of seeing where the future is and just committing to it, and, that, and that's really what we thought we would do. Mm. Uh, Bill, I was wondering if you could outline um, a little bit about what Open Eyes is in terms of kind of the feature set uh, that it has um, currently and also what's planned for the future uh, in terms of, I don't know, things like letter generation or electronic prescribing. You know, what, what features have already been implemented at the moment at Morfields? Okay, well, well, let's start. Um, there's a sort of um, stack of things that, that are developed in a chain. So an idea comes along and it goes through several processes before it ends up in the product. So I'll start at the end with actually what's being used at Moorfields at the moment. And uh, what, we, what we have is um, entering clinical examinations, um, entering detailed operation notes, um, electronic prescribing, uh, automatic and manual letter generation, um, booking of... Uh, operations, i.e. inpatient, although we call them inpatient as opposed to outpatient, but what we mean by that is mainly day cases in ophthalmology. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a few other, uh, what we call event types, uh, like uh, consent forms. So we, we've now got consent forms uh, personalised on the system as well. Uh, and that, that's rather nice because the consenter doesn't have to remember the exact list of benefits and complications for every single procedure. That's supplied uh, by the database, which is agreed by all the subspecialties. So everybody gets the same risks and benefits to begin with. Now, they can be tweaked, obviously, according to personal circumstance. So if you use an example of a, a patient with cataracts coming to uh, your clinic for the first time, if you take us through that, that pathway, and I, I just, I'll be very curious to see how does open eyes kind of smooth that pathway and, 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 and reduce the duplication that you mentioned before. Yes, okay. So, well, the, the patient will arrive with a referral letter, and in the next release coming out in a few weeks, that referral letter will be scanned in. Mm -hmm. So that can be read online. Um, and hopefully after that, the optician might even be able to do it electronically rather than send a letter. Mm. Um, the next thing will be the uh, examination, so the clinical examination by the ophthalmologist, saying, yes, you do have a cataract, this is your level of vision, um, we've had a discussion, and we think surgery is the best thing. Um, mm. The next thing will be a letter back to the optometrist, that, that will be generated semi-automatically or fully automatically by the system. Um, then there will be uh, the recording of a diagnosis and the booking of the cataract surgery. Uh, then there will be um, the, a pre-assessment 
which we haven't got on the system yet, but that will be coming very soon. Mm. Then the recording of the operation note, um, simultaneously the recording of the anaesthetic note, which again isn't on the system yet, but will be added. Then the post-operative prescription of drops, a discharge letter, then when they come to the clinic, uh, a follow-up appointment, and a final discharge letter. Mm. So we're pretty much the 90% of that pathway is now on the system. And our goal is, uh, by the end of this calendar year, to have the whole thing on the system so that we'll then be able to get rid of our paper backup notes and the, and the buff files that we're all used to and, and love and hate. Uh, we'll be able to get rid of those. And I think perhaps it's, it's worth breaking down that a little bit because I think there are some bits of that pathway when, when I saw life was pretty amazing. For example, of course, that was the use of the intelligent drawing package that can generate uh, the description at, uh, directly. But also there's this ability to be able to predict uh, the relative difficulty and the risk individualized for that particular patient. Yes, that's right. And, and um, that falls into the category of decision support, which... Going back to my time as medical director, um, you know, there, there were lots of discussions about, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could assist uh, doctors at the point of care with their decisions? Mm -hmm. uh, but when you look at it, you, you can't even begin to do any of that until you've got the data electronic. I'm just a simple thing like not prescribing a drug to somebody who's allergic to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a very simple example of decision support. But in order to be able to do that, you first of all need a system that will record the allergies. And secondly, you need an electronic prescribing system which will take account of that recording. So you, you need the basic record before you can even get to first base with decision support. Um, but the example you mentioned is, is really um, uh, in a very exciting example of what can be done once you've got a lot of interesting data on because you can then personalize risk and uh, what that did was take data from a very large study uh, of cataracts which was uh, the data came from the use of an electronic record um, called Medisoft which is very good for collecting cataract data and 55,000 um, patients had their data collected and out of the analysis of that data came really robust data on risks for one of the major complications of cataract surgery. And once you've got that risk data, you can then stick an individual's parameters into it and get their individualized risk, uh, which is really fantastic because that just allows you to do two things. Firstly, when you've got the patient in front of you, you can actually tell them their risk rather than an average risk. Mm when they might be at one end of a normal distribution. And instead of telling them the mean in the middle, you're telling them where they are on that distribution, uh, which is useful information if you're deciding about surgery. But the other thing is you can then uh, take those high-risk patients and do something about it, you know, put them on a list which has uh, a consultant supervising or doing the case, for example. So that there are ways of... Uh, using that information to the benefit of the patient, and that's one of the most exciting things. 
That's fantastic. But can I just ask a quick question about how you interact with the patient using open eyes? So if you're making a decision about whether someone should go for surgery or not, and you say you've got this individualized risk, how do you interact with the patient? Is it at the moment just the clinician conveying that risk, or is there anything within open eyes at the moment, perhaps a module that you can use to display information to patients? Um, we haven't got a, a patient design display, but that we do find that they like the drawings as well. Yeah. Because you can, having done the drawing, you can point them towards the screen and say, this is what the back of your eye looks like, this is what your cataract looks like, uh, or whatever. So actually having the graphic input is not only uh, good for speed of use and, in, and intuitive use, but it's actually also good for patient education. Yeah. But we're, we're planning on a, a patient-facing aspect to this as well. So this year we'll also see a patient portal where uh, patients will be able to access their own data uh, using components of the OpenEyes framework, um, as well as um, introducing patient information leaflets, which can be displayed and maybe printed, and perhaps some 3D animations as well to illustrate the surgery. So Will they be dynamic as well, so taking the patient's data into account? Um, yeah, we, we could do that, yes, indeed. But um, the, the main aspect of taking the patient's uh, data into account is to get their individualized risk, which they, they really do appreciate. Yeah. Um, there's an extension to that as well. We're, we're working with um, uh, a company in Iceland who have done some very good work with the academic department there uh, under uh, the professor there, Aina Stephenson. And they've looked at um, the risk of uh, progression of disease. So a major problem we have in ophthalmology are the number of follow-ups, particularly for chronic conditions like glaucoma and diabetic retinopathy. And what tends to happen, just like with cataract surgery, you would say, oh, well, your average risk is this. You say to a patient, well, your average risk of progression over the next six months is X. Therefore, we will see you in three months or six months. But it is an average, and there'd be some patients that don't need to be seen for two years and, and others that need to be seen in six weeks. So if you can individualize the risk of progression, you could firstly have a much more rational follow-up uh, regime for that individual patient. But secondly, you can ensure you're using your resources properly. And the Icelandic work showed that if you were to introduce such a system, you would halve the number of follow-up appointments required for diabetic retinopathy, which would be a massive resource saving. And if we could do the same for glaucoma as well, then, um, you know, that's one of the busiest outpatient clinics in the country. So it would really uh, enable us to channel resources in a, another direction. That's great, isn't it? I mean, it's win all round. It's, it's uh, less... Um, trudging to the clinic for the patient. It's better patient safety. It's less resources used. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, that's an example of the sort of thing you can only do if you've got the data in electronic form. And I, I keep coming back to this point. The, 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 the note, there is really interesting information in hospitals, but it's all written down on paper. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, we need to get it into an electronic form so we can actually make use of it. And how do we do that? I mean, how do we, how can we take, I mean, it's something we discuss quite a lot on the podcast, is how can we take all this legacy data, almost, if we can refer to sort of previous paper-based or even other databases that have existed for, you know, gosh, since hospitals have been innovating in IT in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. How can we 
What are your ideas on how we can take that data and actually use it in a meaningful way? Yes, well, that, that's a very big question. I mean, I think it depends. Uh, let's take it in two bits. So um, let's take the paper notes first. Uh, because there are, there are a variety of ways that you can deal with paper notes. And I think a, a sort of there isn't a solution that fits all. Um, mm -hmm. you, you can certainly, at one end of the scale, you can take the blunderbuss solution, which is to just scan the lot. And there's a hospital in Leuven in Belgium, which is, is very well known, uh, which, is, uh, which has no paper notes. And they have, what they did was scan everything, uh, with a very slick document management system. So you can see all the old paper notes uh, online in a browser uh, by category of item, like letters or examinations or prescriptions or whatever. And they add to that data by getting their clinicians to write on paper and then scan it in. So it's just a document um, management system which although it means you, you've got access to the information when you want to view it, it's almost impossible to do any sort of sensible analysis. You don't have a data structure, you've just got... Exactly, it's just images. Yeah. Uh, but at least they've managed to get rid of the paper notes, which is step one. <laughs> <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum, you have some hospitals which have decided to take completely the opposite view, which is to scan nothing and to say that the paper notes are an inadequate form of data um, containment. Uh, we'll just start afresh with an electronic record, get everything on electronically, and only provide the paper notes if they're really, really needed. And um, what tends to happen is that, um, and there have been a couple of examples of this, is that a lot, there are a lot of requests for the paper notes for the first three months after this is introduced, and then the requests die off. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think to be pragmatic, what we're going to do is a halfway house. So there will be some of our nine subspecialties within ophthalmology who mainly see new patients and for whom legacy data isn't that interesting. And we probably won't supply or scan notes for them. There'll be others, though, where you really do want to know what happened 10 years ago. Uh, and we'll apply a lot of effort to get that data in electronic form. I mean, I guess part of it is a function of the usefulness of old notes for clinicians. I mean, certainly when I was a clinician, say, on call on nights in a hospital, and I needed to find out about um, what had happened with a patient, one doesn't have the time to uh, go through three large sets of notes, but you can find the most recent summary from somebody else or problem list. And I guess... So that's what I always used to go to, and I guess that probably explains why the three-month rule with switching over tends to happen is once you've got somebody who's written something meaningful in terms of a, a, a problem list um, with the right history in there, then actually that becomes the sort of definitive reference for that patient. Um, so I, I'd imagine that, yes, you, you still need that old stuff there, but its usefulness... Um, as a day-to-day -day clinician, as you move forward, gets less and less. Yes, yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so that, that's the paper side of things. As far as legacy electronic data and other systems goes, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there um, because 
it actually is, is very time-consuming. It's not um, conceptually difficult, but it's very time-consuming and fiddly to share data between electronic systems because the way that the data structures are designed is subtly different for almost every item of data. So I, th I think there are two ultimate solutions to that. One is making sure that each item is collected in, in a way that can be shared. And I think one of the uh, most interesting uh, solutions to that problem is the open EHR um, work, where the uh, electronic health record work from CHIME, which is the UCL informatics department. And uh, that's been going on a while, and there's a lot of work that's gone into producing standardized ways of recording uh, things like blood pressure, um, you, you name it, everything. Uh, they, they define them as archetypes. So there's an archetype for blood pressure. And the idea is that if you implement archetypes, then it doesn't matter which system you record the blood pressure in. You can transfer it and read it in another system that supports OpenEHR. So I think that, that's one part of it. The other part is deciding which of the whole range of archetypes like blood pressure or visual acuity for us or intraocular pressure you need to record for a particular purpose. And that's about defining standard, what we call data sets. Yeah. So um, the, the work I told you about, the, I was referring to about the cataract risk, for example, uh, that was enabled by the definition of a standard data set by a group of clinicians who said, well, you know, if, if you're going to look at risk, you really need to have all these bits of data. And that was defined and agreed and then collected, and lo and behold, they were right. You did need that data, and once you had it, you could calculate the risk. I've mentioned this before, but it almost seems that we need, just like they have, you know, for on web development, they have an HTML5 specification or a CSS specification. We kind of need a health data specification um, that sort of defines all of these, as you say, archetypes or, or data structures for certain things. Um, now, obviously, with legacy systems, you know, we're not going to go back and, and change, but perhaps going forward, if we all started using these standards, um, this, this problem with interoperability and, and data migration and data sharing might be that much easier to use. That's absolutely right. Um, but it, it's, it's, um, it's very tempting to underestimate the politics in getting... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one problem. There was a lovely cartoon at a talk I went to the other day where uh, there were three parts to it. Somebody said... Oh, you mean there are 14 standards for this, whatever it was? And the middle picture showed them saying, well, what we need is a universal standard that fits everything. And then the next picture said there are now 15 standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is that classical XKCD um, uh, comic strip. That's which, right. Uh, gets, <laughs> yeah, gets used um, all the time at these, uh, at these standards talks, which I thought really summarizes the problem. Um, so, Bill, when... so you. To strive to this for this excellence, you clearly need um, people to be able to create an excellent product. How do you attract uh, the skills um, of people to to employ to work effectively for the NHS um, to create um, the software? Well, it's um, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. We, we've got a very good team of uh, developers now um, who work very well together and. Um, it's certainly something that was uh, outside my expertise when, when we started. 
um, I had absolutely no idea how you build a team. And it's been a sort of iterative process. Um, but there are certainly a lot of people out there who uh, will respond to the vision, who understand what it is we're trying to do, are very interested in the idea of the open source public benefit helping the NHS side of things and are prepared to work really hard to deliver it. So there are lots of people out there. It's just a matter of finding them. But I'm very glad to say we have found them. We've got a great team. Um, but if the, the other aspect of it is is that writing the software is uh, one component. And I go so far as to say it's a smaller component of the process. The, the most difficult process, part of the process, is actually defining what it is that we want the software to do. Mm. Um, and so often, uh, that's where software, particularly medical software, falls down. Because the, the doctor who specifies it might have a vague idea of what it is that they want, but turning that idea into something that a software engineer can then take and convert that into software is a very difficult process. And it's not to be underestimated. It's, it's certainly something that probably our team spend most time on, is actually defining the requirements and saying, this is what it's going to do. This is how it's going to do it. And it's only really when you've done that part that you've got something that's fit. And you've got to write it down, of course, in detail. <laughs> but uh, it's only then that you've got something that's fit to hand over to a developer. And how do you manage that relationship between uh, the programmer and the end user or the clinicians? Well, w w I'm very keen on the idea of bringing them together because even when you spend a lot of time writing something down and specifying it, there will always be things that you've forgotten. And you really need an iterative process where you say, well, this is what I think. The developer turns out the software. Then you look at it and say, well, it's not quite what I thought, but... If you tweak that and add that, it will be. And you have that sort of iteration. Um, and that's been a very key aspect of our development process, which I think is probably different from um, the traditional, certainly the traditional NHS process, where the user will never meet a developer. You know, they'll meet a salesman uh, who will talk to a manager, who will then talk to a team leader, who will then talk to a development lead, and then in a back room somewhere, maybe in a different country, there will be a developer. It really <laughs> what the software that he or she is developing is going to be used for. Yeah, this is what destroys medical software projects, um, in my experience, mm. is not, not having that input. Not, not, you know, and it's the same on both sides. You know, developers not taking the time um, and, and clinicians not, often not, not that they can't take the time, but they don't have the time. Um, to actually, because it's not just one meeting. You know, I often go and see clients and they say, oh, you know, we've got an hour to spare. Would that be enough you know, <laughs> for us to define this entire product which we're sinking all this money into? And I sort of have to, I sort of have to blink and, and try and explain to them that actually it's not only just an hour, it's an hour now, probably two, <laughs> then it's an hour next week, then it's an hour the week after, <laughs> and it yeah. goes on and on yeah. and on. And that's, that's really difficult for some of them to hear um, because they've just secured the funding and they want... The solution. That's right, and, and they have uh, they always underestimate how long it takes to define the, the functionality. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the first things I did with our development team was to send them down to the operating theatre and spend <laughs> the morning looking at ice surgery. One of them nearly fainted 
But <laughs> what, what it did do was it, it um, made them understand exactly what the process was so they could see, uh, see the operation, which they found interesting, and then they could see the surgeon recording uh, what they'd done and battling with the pre-existing IT. Uh, and, you know, they came back from that, A, understanding what the problem was and B, inspired to try and give the surgeon a better experience. So that, that was really good. And the, the other thing we encourage is clinicians to you know, pop into the office and say, you know, I don't like the way this works for the following reasons. What are you going to do about it? So yeah. we, we, we keep a very close relationship between the developers and the users. I think it's probably a good time to um, tell all the listeners that they themselves can actually go and play with a lot of these modules that are being actively developed at the moment, can't they, Bill? That's right. Yeah, we we stood them all on the website, uh, which is very soon to be revamped to be to um, be even more uh, user friendly and have more material on it. Uh, but right now, uh, all the all the sort of developing ideas, some of which have ended up in the product we're using on a daily basis, but uh, a lot of the ideas are up there for people to play with and to comment on. Wow, and I guess that makes, it's made possible because it's it's all based on. There might be a good time. What is the technology stack of of Open Eyes? What is it built on? I took um, the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, as you know, the, the the sort of front end is HTML5, so uh, we aim to support um, you know, any any HTML5 compliant browser on any device. So that's the vision. I mean, we we choose to use Chrome, but it should work on Safari and Firefox and, and any platform, including tablets. And, and certainly, practically, it will work on an iPad-sized tablet. Uh, it will actually work on an iPhone, but um, getting all the information on that screen area is a little bit of a compromise. But um, certainly an iPad is a practical way of, of using it. So that's the front end. Uh, and the, the HTML is, is served up by PHP, uh, and we chose that because it's it's the most widely used web language. Um, and we're using a framework called Yi, which is a Web2 uh, framework, which is quite lightweight and, and flexible and, and very elegant. And the back end is an SQL database. And it should work, because Yi has a data abstraction layer, it should work with any backend database. But we chose for matters of principle, really, as well as um, historical and evidence-based reliability, we chose uh, MySQL running, and the whole thing runs on a, a Unix server. So getting Unix servers into the NHS was quite an interesting experience as well. But <laughs> since, since we went live in January 2012, uh, they haven't uh, fallen over or even threatened to fall over once. So we're very happy with the performance. Yeah, I've just fought that battle on a new contract, and I just about got it through. But it was uh, it was close. They wanted some Microsoft Enterprise based thing, and I just it was going to be a game ender for me. So they yeah, they, well, they settled with something else. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of a lot of departments are you know they they don't understand about open source and and what's out there. You know, they they've been trained within the monoculture of Microsoft and. And they use the word enterprise to mean better. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so my answer to that is to, to point out what Facebook uses. 
which is exactly the same stack that we use, although with a few tweaks, admittedly. But they manage a reliable six million hits a second. <laughs> if they can do that, I think it's probably good enough for our little patient. Absolutely. Uh, and Bill, um, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote some of Open Eyes yourself. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. I, I started with the drawing package, which was initially written in Java, and it ran as a Java applet. And then um, I wrote the pilot software in PHP without a framework uh, for the pilot, which started in the end of 2010. Um, and I've rewritten the um, drawing package in uh, JavaScript. So it, we, we don't need to have Java applets, which are probably on their way out on the, in the sort of general history of things. Mm. So it's all HTML5 now. Uh, and I still um, write the drawing package bits, but uh, the, the rest I defer to the uh, development team. We talk a lot about doctors who are able to code and write programs on this um, on this particular podcast. I mean, do you think there could have been any way that Open Eyes could have uh, started or be created if you yourself did not have this deep understanding of both the medical process, the the healthcare service delivery process, and the IT part of things? Well, I think probably the answer is no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm... I'm I'm realistic enough to realize that clinicians who code are always going to be a minority mm. um, and are not the answer to everything. But I think um, the, it's a minority that's worth cultivating because it, it does mean that you have an overall view of the problem. And the communication that we've already mentioned is that's so difficult between the clinician user and the developer who come from different worlds. And that communication, even when they're talking to each other in the same room, is difficult enough, let alone when they're separated. Mm. But if that communication can happen within the same skull, then it can actually be very efficient. And you can look at a problem and think, well, this is what I like to do, uh, and this is the other half of your brain is saying, well, that's how we can do it in code. And then you, you go and write it, and then it, it works or it doesn't work, then you change it. And very quickly, you, you have a sort of development cycle that's going on you know, sometimes several times a second in your head as mm -hmm. you think through these problems. So I, th I think it is quite a useful combination. Um, but it is, it's unusual for obvious reasons because you know, they come from very different backgrounds. But perhaps coming less so, I mean, with, with some of the resources that are available now online, for learning these skills, you know, I'm thinking of things like Code Academy, Treehouse, Code School. You know, you can pretty much go in as, you know, a doctor, an intelligent human being, which I, I think we'd say most doctors are. Um, and if you've got the drive and have got some idea about something you want to do in your landscape, i.e., medicine, um, you really can pick up these skills and, and start working on something. And that's what really interests me about what happened with you is you started the whole process off and you started yourself and then other people came in. Um, and that's, I think, what a lot of the critics of doctors learning anything about coding miss is that we're not proposing that all doctors suddenly become professional software developers and develop their com completely their own, 100% by themselves, the next big open source electronic health record. But getting started and generating the momentum and the communication 
is, I think, is enough to, to make it worthwhile if they have an interest. Yeah, I, I would entirely agree with that. And, and it's, it's also good for another reason as well, which is that um, it, it helps deal with the gulf of understanding between the two professions. Yeah. So if, if you've done a reasonable amount of coding, even if you don't code a single line, you, could, you learn to interpret the, the language that you're speaking to a developer or a software company uh, uh, with. Uh, and in the same way that you know, if you play a musical instrument, you will appreciate uh, a really good virtuoso player much more. Or if you're cooking and you go to a fine restaurant, you'll appreciate that more. So it's, it's a very similar process to that. So I think it's a good thing all around. And it's kind of analogous to the relationship that uh, Wei Kyung, you've had with your cell council project. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, the other thing, of course, which I think we haven't talked about is that there's this other skill that we have not mentioned, which is you were also medical director of the trust, of course, for quite a few years. And I guess a lot, as you said, a lot of about in software development and getting the resources to do open eyes must have you know, used a lot of those skills, those political skills influencing the, ab the ability to sell the vision to the people to give you the resource to do this. Yes, that's right. I, I was very fortunate being in the right place at the right time, really, uh, for that, because you, you do learn as medical director how decisions are made in a big organisation. So certainly it's very different when you're a, tra a trainee doctor and you're in this big organisation, you might not have even met the chief executive. You probably almost certainly haven't met the chief executive, uh, unless you've done something really bad. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, therefore, it's, the decision-making is obscure, whereas when you've sat on the board once a month all day for you know, eight years, you really do understand uh, what it takes to make a decision, and that's certainly made it a lot easier. Uh, and... Uh, and a lot quicker as well, because I could go to the people I knew who had the who who were the stakeholders, like the finance director, like the chief executive, like the medical director, uh, convince them, and then the rest was very easy. So, how how did you do? You have to write a very clear business case, a clear return of on investment on on an open-source project that doesn't require Morpheus to own the IP. I'm just thinking that that must be such a tricky thing to do. Well, yeah, the, the, the first bit was easy. Right? Writing a business case that made sense uh, and, uh, and balance was very easy because you know, it does. I mean, the, the, uh, my main interest, as you know, is in the patient care mm. search aspects, but there's no denying the fact that the financial savings by doing this and, and particularly when we get rid of paper notes are enormous mm -hmm. so it's a and going back to the Leuven hospital experience their business case was entirely uh, financial so they said if we do this we will save x millions and that was enough they didn't even have to get into patient care or all the rest of it um, so, so, so I think the, the writing the business case was easy the difficult bit was uh, getting them to agree that it was open source. Mm. Because the perception was, uh, particularly among the, uh, the finance, uh, the, the non-executive directors on the board who have a finance background, you know, they're, they're quite understandably, their view was, well, 
we're spending a lot of money developing a piece of software. Why can't we sell it and get money from it? Mm. Uh, and you know that that argument uh, took a, took a while to get through, um, and the way we got through it was partly by pointing out that, that that's what we'd done the last time, and it had failed miserably. <laughs> uh, we had a twenty percent deal on sales of the software, but twenty percent of zero is zero. <laughs> so that that didn't um, that didn't work, uh, and secondly. Um, pointing out that if we made it open source, we would get a lot more collaboration. And that's turned out to be true. So we've had the time and IP and effort put in by clinicians outside Moorfields from all over the country. So the, the cataract stuff was led by um, uh, Suzanne Brannan, who's in Fife in Scotland. And the mm. glaucoma stuff has had a lot of input from James Morgan in Wales and that simply would not have happened if they thought they were contributing towards Moorfields coffers. Um, and the third aspect was pointing out that um, open source doesn't mean there aren't commercial opportunities, um, mm. and you only have to look at Red Hat uh, to realise that it's now a billion-dollar company and that they make money by installing, maintaining, and supporting open source software. So that. There, there are still commercial opportunities to be had. One example, going back to our the Openize universe, what we're trying to do, and again, stealing an idea from um, from the IT industry elsewhere, is going back to our functions, like the letter generation, like the examination, like the consent form. They're a little bit like apps uh, added to an iPhone. And, and just on the iPhone, you can have a mixture of free and paid for apps we envisage exactly the same thing happening with open eyes and an obvious paid for app might be a private patient function um, and that would be something that could be sold and you know Morfields might if Morfields were to develop a private patient app for open eyes then they could sell that and it, mm. it still it doesn't interfere with the underlying open source architecture so that was all part of the argument to persuade the board that it was a sensible thing to do to go down the open source route. But, but it did take a while, and it wasn't helped by the fact that open source is really not something that the NHS culture is geared up to support at the moment. I think that is changing, though, which is encouraging. Yeah, I, I just fought exactly the same battle um with uh, a hospital down south for a new mobile uh, application. Um, and uh, eventually they, they, they said yes, um, but it was really, you know, you're quite right. I mean, the, the, the culture is just not there. I mean, they, they, I think they thought I was crazy when I suggested it. Um, <laughs> yes, but but they, they, came, they, came, they came around eventually. Yeah. Um, but well, the, the arguments are very sound. Um, it's just it's people, the majority of people haven't thought about it. And they associate open source with you know, disorganized, poor quality, uh, difficult to install, all the rest of it. And um, how ironic! You know that. That's, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and actually, it's quite I, interesting because a lot of uh, medicine, actually, and a lot of research, and especially now trending towards open source uh, publishing, um, a lot of the way we do medicine is open source. So it's odd that people in medicine would be resistant to the idea of it. 
but the, it's not the people in medicine who are commissioning mm. the product. It's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's 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 the non-medics. It's the it's the finance people and the IT people who are not so keen. Um, and, and going back to the, and that, that's illustrated one of the problems we've had um, with uh, other trusts who are very interested in taking the product, particularly the trusts where some of the people who've contributed the ideas to OpenEyes actually work in. Um, that those, uh, in general, 90, I would say 90 or 95 percent of trusts are unable with their current IT department and the resources they have to actually install an open source bit of software. Because mm-hmm. it does need uh, expertise, time, and commitment, uh, and you know, the, the, the vision to actually press the go button. So uh, this project wouldn't have happened without uh, the support of our IT director, you know, who went out, Mike Anderson, who went out the limb and said, you know, okay, I think this is going to work. Um, we're going to support it. Um, but if you if you don't have someone with that degree of vision, then it's not it's simply not going to happen. Um, and apart from anything else, it's time and resources. You know, you need to have someone who is it's his or her job to actually make sure the thing is working. It's make sure it's backed up, make sure that when updates happen, they happen smoothly. Make sure all the users are happy and the users are maintained and etc, etc. There's a lot of work there, and many IT departments rely on the fact that external companies who are paid a license fee or a maintenance fee actually provide that service for them. Uh, And they don't have the resources to do it themselves. So we've certainly identified the need for a a red hat for open eyes. And however that is uh, generated, whether Morfields do it or whether somebody else does it, it certainly needs to happen to allow a greater uptake of the OpenEyes product. So how, how many hospitals and how many countries have bits of OpenEyes running that you, are, that you know of? Well, the, the, we've got um, OpenEyes is more, it's, uh, we've been talking very much about the sort of core EPR product. Yep. Um, but bits of it are being used for online data collection systems. Um, for audit and um, revalidation purposes. So there's one that's been running for at least a year um, which collects data on retinal detachment, which uses the drawing package to collect that information. And that's being accessed from hospitals throughout uh, the UK and Europe. Uh, For example, the the Newcastle uh, experience I mentioned earlier with the Chrome browser, uh, it's it's that that they're using rather than the OpenEyes product. All right. The, the core EPR is currently being used by only us, but it's about to launch in uh, Cardiff next mm-hmm. month and in five, probably two or three months after that. Uh, but there's a lot of interest outside as far away as Melbourne in using wow. it. But it, the big barrier is the fact that, you know, I've just mentioned, they really need someone to help them with it. Because ninety-five percent of people can't can't do the open source bit, and and um, and also, what about the ability of resource-poor settings to use it? Have you had any experience or approach um, from countries like that? Well, well, yes, we have, and one of the most um, interesting approaches we've had is from a, um, a charity called Orbis, 
uh, who are also known as the Flying Eye Hospital. And although they have a, a plane which is decked out as a hospital, their activities stretch uh, as far away as um, 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 education and um, teaching and training. And uh, they, they are very interested in um, taking on a, an electronic record which could help with all sorts of things, not only their own operations, but actually in, in the environments that they work in, many places in the third world, uh, even paper records are very difficult to find. Mm. Mm. Um, and an online uh, flexible electronic record is exactly what is needed in many of those environments. Um. Bill, I've heard of something called the Open Eyes Foundation. Um, what is that? Is that the is that the vision of the Red Hat for Open Eyes, or is that something different? That's yeah, so slightly different. Um, we're very keen on separating any commercial activity from the core organisational activity that's required to make sure that there is a core free open source product that works for everybody, and that's mm-hmm. the role, role of the foundation. So it's modelled shamelessly on the Apache software foundation. So what it will do, uh, and it has been set up now, um, what, it, what it will do is firstly coordinate the development. Uh, mm. So it, it will run the website and, and uh, every time there's a bit developed, it will say this is what it does and this is who's developing it. So if Cardiff want to develop a glaucoma module, they can apply to the foundation. And the foundation might say, well, there's no point in doing that because that's already being done by Birmingham mm. or by Melbourne. Uh, why don't you work with them and share your ideas? Um, that's the first thing, is coordination. The second is sort of stamp of approval. So it will have a quality assurance um, role so that... If, 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 say, Cardiff develops the glaucoma module, then before it can be given the stamp of approval, it would go through a QA process run by the foundation who would say, OK, well, this passes all, the, it, it works, it meets the open eyes interface guidelines, it meets the consistency guidelines, it therefore ticks all the boxes for an open eyes approved product, we'll put a stamp of approval on it and mean that it's downloadable mm-hmm. so that somebody who's downloading it or the Red Hat for Open Eyes who are charging to install it knows that it's got that central approval. Um, it'll also have an educational um, role um, and running the website, um, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a not-for-profit coordinating overarching body that's not beholden to any particular organization like Moorfields, for example. And, uh, and the other very exciting thing that, um, that you were talking to me about and was demonstrated quite nicely um, in the most recent Hack Day at Oxford is that I understand that you, you are also building a software development kit to allow people to repurpose the work and the framework for other specialties? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the fu- fundamental design is medical rather than ophthalmological. We've been very careful to ensure that there's nothing fundamentally ophthalmological about it. I mean, clearly most of the functions or the apps that we've added are ophthalmological in nature, but 
No, there are others that aren't. Um, so the correspondence um, module would work for anything. And essentially, we think this event-based model where we're collecting things that happen to the patient uh, applies to every specialty in medicine. And, and it was very exciting for us to meet the cardiologists at the hat day and firstly realize they've got exactly the same problems that we have in ophthalmology. <laughs> and, and, and secondly, to actually produce something that they thought was useful. Um, so that was very exciting. And I think vindicated the, the underlying design. Uh, but the toolkit um, has a number of functions. We, we have a, uh, an app generation toolkit, which means that pretty much anyone can create an app or, or an event um, to get into open eyes. And uh, as well as being a start for a development process, it also um, has the function of being able to um, add that flexibility I was talking about earlier. So if you're running an installation of open eyes and you have a local need which arises, you know, the local commissioning group wants extra data on condition X by next week, then instead of going to your software company and begging them to make the change and giving them 40,000 quid in <laughs> six months, you can actually do it yourself, and within a couple of days, you've got that extra functionality. Wow. Stephen, you need to start working on open brain. I need to do some open blood or something. <laughs> I've already got my napkin out. I'm writing as you talk. <laughs> I would actually be very interested in, in, in starting something around that, certainly. I mean, I've, I've had experience at the moment where in my research I've needed to collect data and I've, I've written a, a sort of quick Ruby on Rails. I mean, it's not pretty, but a quick Ruby on Rails application to capture data. Um, and I'd love to use some of the elements that you've got um, for, for open eyes in it. I think it would be great. Well, it's all very downloadable. So um, it's um, uh, there should be, yeah, there is a document on the website that shows you how to use it. So if you were to download and install the open eyes software, it comes with it. It's called the G tool, uh, G as opposed to Y, which is the framework. Ah, okay. uh, we've, we've basically taken their co-generation tool and tweaked it to create event types. So, yeah, you're welcome to use it. It's all downloadable and there to play around with. I'll check it out. To use at the hack day to produce the events that were, um, that were demonstrated. And I think you shouldn't underestimate what, you managed to create at a hack day, which was an ability uh, to record the full event for a patient coming in with an acute myocardial infarction, the diagnosis, the, the assessment, the intervention that was created using a dynamic diagram and then generate a letter and a discharge summary and an operating notes. I mean, it was pretty complete, wasn't it? And it was done in, you know, 36 hours. Yeah, yes, well, we, we were very pleased with the way it um, came together, and particularly to see the, the cardiologists being so excited about it as well. But it, it comes back to the, you know, the, the, this is the fundamental problem that we're all facing in the NHS is that we know what we want, but we haven't got it. So to be able to actually produce something that people uh, want to use and actually solves their problem is very satisfying. It sounds like um, hearing you talk, you've taken a lot of inspiration from other um, IT projects and other um, other arenas. Um, what are you using now at home or, or even at work? Um, what are you seeing that you would like to bring into Open Eyes? Oh, um, 
Uh, well, I, I think we want to be cutting edge all the time. So I think clearly tablets are um, a very useful device. And um, we're already supporting the tablet in the sense that we're um, HTML5, so it can be used. But there are all sorts of other things that we would like to do. Uh, one of our ideas is, is on the website, and, and we hope to turn it into reality later in the year, which is the use of the iPhone to take photographs. And the user experience here would be the user is logged on to OpenEyes with a patient in front of them. So OpenEyes is on their tablet or on their um, computer, on the browser. They take their iPhone out, take a photograph of the patient's eye, in our case. Yeah. Because the system knows that it's their iPhone, um, the, the picture that they take is then uploaded, and the system in general knows which record to stick it into, which is the record of the patient that's open in their login, if you see what I mean. I'm, I'm not sure yeah. I've explained that very well, but from a user experience, they would simply take a picture of the patient with the iPhone, and by the time they'd sat down to uh, look at the record, it was already there. And they can then annotate it and draw arrows on it and say, you know, in our particular ophthalmology case, this lid goes up, that lid goes down, uh, plan the surgery or whatever. So it's, it's, it's basically using the exciting technology that's out there to the maximum advantage without waiting years or decades for it to catch up. That's great. I can imagine you just walking around, uh, you know, walking around the city of London, just sort of seeing things here and there and being on the Internet and just having all of these great ideas. But um, it's great work. Bill, you need you need to be able to record video snippets as well, so you can demonstrate the ptosis and the and the diplopia, and then I can imagine Stephen will be recording the gait of his patients and putting it onto the record. Yes, absolutely. You know why not? If that's useful information, let's record it and integrate it. Because at the moment we just do this really horrible job of trying to describe what we see, when a picture or a short five second video would just show everything, and I'm sure the patients would love it as well, to be able to keep a record how they have improved over time. Yes, and it would be really good patient uh, feedback for them so you could show them, well, this is before the operation, this is now. Yeah, it would be I think it would be quite interesting as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, think we, we, I think it's been an amazing conversation that we have um, tonight, and thank you so much for your time, Bill. But before we go, um, where can people find out more about Open Eyes and, um, you know, can they subscribe to a mailing list or a Twitter feed or if they want to learn more? Uh, yes, well, the, the first stop would be the website, so openeyes.org.uk, and there are links to... Um, uh, we've got, we have a Twitter feed, um, um, because of my generation, I haven't really got my brain around Twitter yet, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of documentation, lots of links. The code's on GitHub, and anyone, anyone can download it, and um, there are instructions on how to install it. So it can be installed on a laptop. Uh, so I've got a local installation on my Mac, which was pretty easy to install. And... Um, there are lots of ways to get involved and to read all about it. Well, um, that's uh, that's fantastic. So, um, uh, so Bill, thank you so much um, for coming for coming on. 
Um, oh, just to tell all the listeners as well that um, last year you were very kind to give some time and we did some screencasts um, of, of Open Eyes and some of the things that we talked about today and they are on YouTube on my channel and we'll put it on the show notes as well for the listeners. Um, so um, thank you so much. And every time I talk to you, I, I feel that I get um, so many ideas and that my internal energy gets regenerated again. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> well, thank yeah, th- thanks, Bill. That was really, really great. And, the, and, the, and the, the future, I mean, your generation holds the answer to this. So I'm really, uh, really absolutely delighted that you guys are all interested in, in pursuing this because it's, it's, it's hard work, but it is the way forward. Um, so, you know, the future is in your hands. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Okay.